Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's Stefan Molyneux. It is Thursday, December the 6th, 2006. And this morning, my brethren, it is time to talk about the union of a man and a woman in the dark with some butter. Actually, no, it's not going to be quite that exciting. Um, what I'd rather talk about this morning is unions, political unions. Economic unions, collective bargaining unions, however you want to shake a stick at it, that's the unions we're going to chat about. Now, of course, it's always important to start with a definition and a little personal history because I don't want anyone to think that these ideas just come out of nowhere. They are, in fact, sent by the devil himself. So, uh, a union, of course, is a, um, a, a group of people who have a monopoly over hiring in a particular economic circumstance and in return for that monopoly they are given the power to tax employees. It's really not a whole lot more complicated than that. Uh, unions grew out of you know a fairly I think a fairly noble tradition in which you wanted as a, um, a worker uh, you know, if you were new to a city or whatever, then you wanted to make sure that you weren't being taken advantage of when you went to a new job, right? So if you step off the boat at Alice Island and, you know, you're from Poland or wherever and you have to get a job, uh, you have no idea what the prevailing rates are, what the prevailing circumstances are. Uh, what what are the labor conditions? What are you what are you obligated? You know, I mean, you, you could get off the boat at Alice Island speaking almost no English, and somebody could just tell you, well, you know, you have to give me forty percent of your income because that's the law of the land, right? And you might work for a couple of months before you find out that that's not the case. So, education about the local laws uh, is a pretty important part of entering into a new economic arrangement. I mean, we all face this, you know, if you do any traveling, uh, we all face this when we get off um, the, um, uh, the plane in a foreign country, and, you know, we're not sure about the currency, we don't know the distance to our hotel, uh, we don't know what the local taxes are on, um, uh, on cab fares, and so, you know, one of the things we would like to know is well, how much is this going to cost me, and are you charging me a fair price? And where you don't know that, um, and you have, no, you have no possibility of a refund, then you kind of need knowledge in advance, right? So I think that's, I mean, that to me is a perfectly valid and useful uh, circumstance. I mean, I, I feel comfortable buying from Walmart because I know that they hammer their suppliers like crazy in these little box rooms of negotiating hell. And so they're getting me a good price, and, you know, they have a price guarantee, and if I don't like it, I can return my, my goods to any Walmart, so I don't feel any particular risk there. But, you know, in certain situations, I just don't know how much stuff is going to cost. Like, I just have no idea. Um, and so, you know, it's important to have some sort of um, collective knowledge of these things. So one of the things that happened, um, and, and of course there are exploitive uh, capitalists out there. I mean... <laughs> It's not, uh, it's not just a stock character from central casting, but it's also true that, um, you know, in, in capitalist circles and people who own factories or people who own businesses, you know, they, um, they'll cheat people, right? I mean, it's not like they'll cheat people any more or less than anyone else, I don't believe. I don't have any statistics, but 
you know, there are people who cheat others, and just because of the nature of the requirement for economic information socially, you know, just just sort of think back on your own experience, and and you can recognize this that when you have a good experience with a company, you are not so likely to tell people. I mean, it it just isn't human nature to communicate good information uh, as readily as bad information. And it's not because we're depressive as a species or anything like that. It simply is because good information is not um, economically as valuable to us as bad information. I'm not talking about the the nightly paranoia of the local news. Uh, I'm just talking about you uh, you generally you know when you're out hunter gathering with your stone age buddies you don't sort of point over the all over the place and say well no leopard there no leopard there no leopard there oh uh, no wait no leopard there I thought I know I didn't don't no leopard there uh, you know what you do is you say well that's the leopard right because that's the most uh, advantageous information to be passing around so um, so the need for uh, information about harmful uh, characteristics or harmful people within the economy is very high. And so you are going to hear a lot about, you know, bad stories about people, right? If you get cheated by a store, you're going to be outraged and upset and tell everybody. And if a store refunds your money, uh, you're much less likely to tell people and they're much less likely to care. I mean, I do want to hear about a store that has cheated you uh, I don't really care a huge amount about a store that's treated you well. Um, as I certainly don't care as much. So this need to gather information about uh, hiring practices and the um, you know good and bad employers and so on was I mean and I'm not talking about any sort of organized unionism at the, at, the, at the moment. I'm just talking about the general social patterns of of the need for collective information about economic circumstances. Um, and, and the need to know the laws, right? I mean, what are the laws of collective bargaining? What are the laws of, of what is allowable and what is reasonable? And what are the general market? What is the general market information? I mean, if you're going to go uh, for a raise at your job, there's a couple of things that you need to know, some of which you can know yourself pretty easily and some of which are going to require a lot more specialized knowledge. So the thing that you're going to know um, immediately on your own is, you know, kind of how well have I been doing? Assuming you don't have one of these horrible bosses who doesn't ever give you any feedback, then you're going to say, okay, well, how am I doing? I mean, if I'm going to go for a raise, it's going to be somewhat contingent upon how well I'm doing. That's the first thing you need to know. Now, the second thing that you need to know, which is harder to know, is how important is, is what I'm doing to the organization as a whole, right? I mean, so to take a, a silly example, just say I'm, I'm a janitor at a hospital and I'm really excellent at polishing floors, so I'm doing really well at my job. And, I, you know, please, I understand there's a lot more to being a janitor than that. I take my knowledge of the janitorial arts from scrubs. So uh, <laughs> excuse me if I'm being simplistic. Um, so you're doing a great job at polishing floors. Uh, the only problem is that they've, they closed the wing six months ago. So you're polishing floors that... Um, nobody's walking on. So you may be doing it great at your job, but your job may not be valuable to the employer. You know, this happens in software all the time, of course. Right? I mean, you, you get an expert on a particular architecture, and then, you know, usually within 
four to six years that architecture is just in sort of decaying maintenance mode and you have to go and get retrained and all the new stuff and I mean I guess I could say that I liked that a little more when I was younger and had more time to fool around with new architectures but now it's quite a burden uh, to get all up to speed on you know .NET 2.0 and all this kind of stuff so that's the second thing that you don't have as much knowledge of and the third thing um, which and again this is all prior to the internet right well the second one you can't get from the internet anyway but the third one you can which is what are the general market conditions for your job skills right I mean if if um, if you if the market for your job skills has increased significantly since you last went for your wage then you can go for a much higher raise than if it's dropped right so if you're a computer programmer in 1998 or 1999 then you can go for a pretty significant raise because the demand for computer programmers is very high in just in North America but if you're a computer programmer in sort of 2002 or 2003 after the crash then you are not going to do as well I mean I myself took took a pretty significant pay cut um, from my sort of giddy high as a chief technical officer at um, a sort of very fast-growing startup uh, I took a uh, significant pay cut um, after I mean I left the workforce in 2001 for about a year and a half and I sort of wrote books and thought and you know came up with all the stuff that I am uh, communicating now and then I went back to work and it was very hard for me to find a job and I took a pay cut uh, of about 25% from where I was previously and of course I, I mean in my current job I have no stock options or any ownership I'm simply an employee but you know that was the best that I could do uh, given the market situation and I have no complaints um, with my employer because it would be economically foolish for that person to pay higher than the going rate and if that person did pay me higher than the going rate it would be a short-term gain proposition because they then wouldn't be economically savvy enough to keep the company running and growing so uh, I would rather have a, a less paid job for a longer period of time than a higher paid job for a shorter period of time because uh, that way I get to avoid the economic um, loss of looking for work so um, I mean these sort of three general uh, things right how am I doing how well does the company value what I'm doing and how well is my, are my job how much in demand are my job skills as a whole these things aren't easy to figure out and they're certainly not easy to figure out in fact they're probably pretty impossible to figure out if you're not a native English speaker right so given that a lot of people came to North America you know in the 18th about 19th century in particular of course they needed collective bargaining agencies you know it all makes perfect sense who could ever have a problem with you know people banding together to put forward a common front to their employer to gain better the best conditions that they possibly can I mean it would be uh, ridiculous to say that they couldn't I mean I've run I've been off obviously I've been on both sides I've run a company and I've also been you know a, a peon and I mean it's there's no difference I mean everybody tries to maximize their advantage you want to make sure that you make things as win-win as possible so you know I mean if you I mean for instance just things like if you if you can't get a raise what you can do is negotiate to work from home once a week or you can you know ask for a car allowance you know, which is tax deductible so um, you know there's things that you can do to make it win-win but the point is that you know everybody tries to maximize their advantage and you know 
obviously everybody is perfectly free to associate with whoever they want. Right? Freedom of association is a pretty fundamental um, attribute of human beings. Now, freedom of association is one thing. Forced association is quite another, which we'll get to in a minute or two. So, you know, collective bargaining, perfectly valid process, and unions um, who uh, get together... I mean, unions were, you know, basically originally informal gatherings of people who knew more, right? So, like, the elders of your factory or your community would sort of say, okay, we, we nominate so-and-so, you know, we, we nominate Bob to uh, speak for us in this collective bargaining process, and then Bob sits down with the owner, and Bob tries to get everybody the best deal because Bob's been in the industry for 30 years, and he knows the market, and he has friends, and maybe he's, you know, he's applied for another job or two, so he knows what the going rate is for lathe operators or whatever. So, you know, Bob... Um, uh, you know, goes and, and represents you. And it's perfectly valid, right? I mean, you hire a lawyer to represent you in court. You hire an accountant to represent you in your tax matters. And it's perfectly valid to say to, you know, so-and-so, go and represent me in this collective bargaining process, and I will accept whatever it is that you come up with. So, uh, generally what happens, though, the problem that occurs in the sort of general growth of, of uh, state power is, well, a sort of two, two major things occur that corrupt this perfectly voluntary and perfectly honorable process. The first thing is that as state power grows, uh, then the state gains monopolies over critical services. And so the state begins to hire, uh, obviously, more and more people. And the state then gains a monopoly over critical services. Because, you know, the question of job interruption is central to the question of collective bargaining, right? Scabs, as they're called, or replacement laborers, are central uh, because they're, you know, based on this principle of can work continue or not. If you're a factory owner and, you know, Bob is sitting down with you saying, we want 5% more, and you say, ha, no, I'm an evil capitalist, I'm not going to give you a penny more, not a penny, I say. And, you know, all, all that's going to happen is, 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 you know, either they're going to take it or Bob's going to come back and say, I think we should have a strike. And, you know, a strike, obviously, is a perfectly valid, uh, assuming you have no contract against it, a, a strike is a perfectly valid and, and healthy way to oppose a bad capitalist uh, or a bad factory owner. Um, I mean, it, it probably, to me, it would probably be the case that if I got involved in a strike, I would start looking for work pretty quickly because even if I were able to bully and go through the stress of a strike and bully the factory owner into giving me better money, uh, then, but still, the same guy is in power and it's going to be kind of a mess and there's lots of capitalists out there who treat their people well, so, you know, don't bother. Like, I mean, okay, maybe I'll have a strike because the, you know, I, I don't have any other job offers right now, but, you know, it's a very risky thing to do, right? I mean, you, you have no money, um... And you obviously you can get a bad reputation, you know. Oh, so and so participated in this terrible strike, which cost his employer hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. And I don't know that I want such a rabble rouser in my work crew or whatever, right? So um, a strike is a, a great blow against a uh, uh, a capitalist, like a, fa a factory owner or an employer. I mean, if all my employer, if all my employees up and told me today that they're quitting. Uh, or they're going on strike, I mean, it's horrendous for me. I mean, it's, I mean, it's certainly in the software field, it's unthinkable that you could survive it, uh, which is one of the reasons why software people get paid a little more, right? Because 
you know, I, we got a million lines of code that we're managing, and for me, the idea that I'll get somebody else to come in and you know, start learning that code and be able to maintain the software, I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, uh, you know, we work, we work to avoid that, right? And so a strike is a perfectly valid thing, and it's going to be very difficult. Well, it's going to be easy, pretty easy to replace workers um, to some degree if things are low-skilled. Like if it's pushing a mop, you can get any, anyone to push a mop. But if it's, you know, I don't know, like an expert computer programmer with deep knowledge of the industry, the market, and your product, well, that's going to take anyone six months to a year to become... Uh, expert at well, even a year, maybe a year, they become experts. Six months, they're just becoming may, 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 sort of minorly productive. So, you know, so to have the capacity to strike, perfectly valid. Everybody's um, got it. No, nobody has any problems with that. Nobody can force you to work, and of course, freedom of association means you can all decide to quit immediately. So, of course, the capitalist pays your wages, and he has or she has a bargaining power in that sense. However, but if you just threaten to quit as an individual, it's not going to mean that much, right? Um, but if you all decide to quit, it's going to cost the capitalist a certain amount of money, and he or she may then choose to take part of the money that would have been involved in the job in, in, in the losses based on the, the work stoppage and apply it to wages to keep everyone happy. I mean, you've really soured the relationship. I mean, it's it's like threatening to leave your wife, right? I mean, you... You, you might get her to change her behavior, but you're not exactly building a strong foundation for the future, right? I mean, um, so yeah, so nobody has any problem with that. The problem around work stoppages uh, comes around when um, you are not allowed to hire replacement workers, right? So a union has significant power to harm a capitalist interest and therefore to engage in sort of Soviet style or brute force negotiating tactics and you know everybody recognizes that as a fair and valid thing however if you have the right to permanently stop the work at a particular factory or a, or a job location so you all quit and then the, hap the capitalist is so angry that he says fine you know he pulls a Reagan and the uh, air traffic controllers thing and says fine then you're all fired and I'm going to hire, like, there's lots of people out there who want to work for the wages that I've, I've got. And it may not be because he's a bad capitalist, right? It may be because you have a bad union. Uh, and that, that's sort of important to, to recognize. It is absolutely, un if your union says, you, you know, you just double our wages, well, all that's going to happen is the capitalist is going to bleed his fortune dry, uh, you know, burn up all his capital, and the company's going to go out of business. And that's not good for anyone, really, except for maybe... Um, you know, the workers in the short run. So you might have an unreasonable union just as you might have an unreasonable uh, capitalist. And so, you know, it may be that the union's demands are outlandish and it is economically advantageous for the capitalist to say, you're all fired, I'm going to spend all the money to hire new people and, you know, maybe I'll be a better capitalist in the future and not let things get to this state. But, you know, it may not be economically efficient for the capitalist to just, you know, concede to demands based on a strike. However, if the union has the power to stop work indefinitely, then uh, the, uh, it's entirely a one-sided negotiation. I mean, unless the capitalist just shows, closes his doors and goes to, you know, um, I don't know, goes to Lithuania for an extended vacation, then the capitalist pretty much is going to sort of fuss and fight, but it's going to have to, um, 
uh, he's going to have to cave, right? He's going to have to sort of submit to whatever demands you you make, uh, just because. Like then it's going to become a macho show. It's not going to become any sort of real negotiation because, you know, you, you simply can't. Um, you can't run a factory without people, and if you have no capacity to hire new people, then you just have to concede. You have to accede to the union's demands. The other way that the union uh, is is able to extend a work stoppage is if it has a war chest, right? If it has a, a, a nice fat bank account with which to pay strike members strike pay. So, I mean, if I'm some guy, I got three kids and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, well, I really am not in much of a position to strike because I'm just going <laughs> to... Right, I'm just gonna uh, run out of money, and so the, the, you know, and then I'm just gonna go back to work, and the whole strike is gonna start to break down, and you know, the evil capitalist is gonna win. So the union, of course, wants to do two things: it wants to make sure that it has enough money to pay me, to pay me from going back to work, and it also wants to make sure that it can prevent the capitalist from hiring uh, additional workers or replacement workers or scabs, as they're called. Now. So, so the way that it, it does the, uh, the former is through um, union dues, right? So the union dues go to the union, uh, and then the union puts them in the bank. You know, this is sort of how it's talked about. The union puts them in the bank, uses them for collective bargaining purposes, and uses them for uh, strike pay on the basis of, you know, we have to do a work stoppage. And the way that the union achieves the second, i.e. prevents other people from coming to work at the factory where there's a strike going on is, you know, to to beat them up, right? To use violence, to use threats, intimidation, right? So, I mean, this is why if you try and cross a picket line, uh, you know, at an auto plant, you're likely to get, you know, a glass bottle across the head or a pipe to the nose or something like that. So, you know, you, you sort of take your life in your hands and, you know, sort of incidentally, one of the things that makes it a problem is the uh, police are a union too, so they don't particularly like you know, snopping. There's not much point calling the cops, right, if you're trying to cross a picket line because the cops are a union as well and, you know, they're sort of, especially if it's a public sector strike, they're, they're just going to they're not going to do much, I guess you could say. So you're sort of in a state of nature with that stuff. But, of course, union dues are also subject to market forces. So you have a problem, right? So, I mean, if, if you're giving good value to your employees, like, let's just say that the uh, union is a, a mini- mini capitalist within the factory floor or a series of factory floors uh, which is the case of course they're selling their services to a group of people uh, in return for being paid so uh, what you want to do is you want to obviously as the union you want to maximize your profit so you want your union dues to be as high as possible uh, so but the problem is that if your union dues get too high then two things are going to occur uh, one is that people are just not... They're going to they're gonna work for you, but they're not going to join the union, right? And they may say, look, I'm going to just negotiate my own pay or I don't want to pay that much, that's too high or whatever. Now, the union has a pretty valid argument and says, look, if we're covered by a collective bargaining agreement and you don't contribute, then you're getting... You're a free rider, right? You're getting the benefit of all of this collective bargaining stuff and yet you're not paying for it. So, you know, they have a sort of argument to, to make uh, against the fact that you don't want to pay. Uh, and so, you know, a reasonable person would then say, okay, well, you tell me then what I'm investing in, right? You tell me how much extra pay am I going to get for having you as my collective bargainer. You show me the history. You show me 
you know, here's what happened when you weren't unionized, and here's you know, here's what happens to factory workers with the same skill sets who aren't unionized. They make like eight percent less, and I'm only asking you for two percent of your account, so you're still up six percent or three percent after taxes. And so, you know, a reasonable person will probably say, yeah, okay, I'm in, right? Because, you know, if you're working in a factory, the social pressure of refusing to join a collective bargaining agreement is pretty pretty strong, right? I mean, you have to be pretty, a pretty, made of pretty stern stuff if you're going to, you know, take an economic benefit from your fellows while having to work beside them in a dangerous environment day after day. You know, I mean, and, and certainly in the factory level, socializing is pretty important because it's not like the job is all too exciting so you know if you're willing to avoid joining the union uh, for the sake of getting a benefit that other people are paying for they're going to know that and they're going to not speak to you and they're going to you know pee in your locker or whatever they're going to do right um, and they might uh, key your car you know there's there's ways that they can get you to conform that you probably are going to want to do but if the union dues get too high, so somebody can come and say, well, look, I just don't want to be part of this union. Keep me out of it. Um, I'm not even going to... Uh, I'll negotiate for myself. Thanks. Or there's going to be some other union, right? Someone's going to say, you know, this union's way too high. It's going to go to the employer and say, this union is costing you a lot, right? Because the, the wages that... Sorry, the, uh, the union dues that go to the union come from the employer's pay, right? The, what the employer pays, part of it goes to the union. And so the, someone's going to go to the employer and say, look, I mean, the average union charges like 1% of people's salary, and these guys are at 6%. You know, I'll do it for 1%, you know, and so get rid of these guys, and then he'll go to the employees and say, look, I've got an agreement with the employer that he's going to honor, uh, you know, the commitments just as the previous union did, and he's also, you know, but, but you're going to get, you know, still going to get the extra 5% or 6% from working under a union protected environment but you know you're not going to have to pay you know six percent of your wages you're gonna have to pay five percent or one percent of your wages so you know basically a market situation is going to occur where people are going to be able to offer better deals and so unions don't want that now the other option that you have if you're facing a union where the dues are getting too high is you can just go to work in a factory that's not unionized and this is you know just part of how the market works right so let's say that unions give everybody 10% more salary, well then, you know, everyone's going to be unionized, and then uh, if it's economically advantageous to the, to the workers, to the union, to the, um, to the employer, then everybody's happy. But of course, it never stays that way, right? I mean, as soon as there is a profit center, people always try and push the envelope, right? I mean, you always try and get more money when you go for a raise, and, uh, you know, your, your employer always wants to get better deals when he's going to his suppliers. I mean, everybody wants to push the envelope because, you know, we just like to maximize resources. And it's also kind of fun. You know, I mean, I'm not saying going for a raise isn't a little stressful at times, but, you know, don't you feel, like, better? Don't you feel like a cool guy if you get a good raise? Uh, you feel like you... It's, it's satisfying. I mean, not only is it satisfying economically, because, you know, probably only comes out to, like, 50 bucks a paycheck... But it's satisfying just from, you know, you feel like you've, your worth has been validated and you've, you've taken on a challenge and you've negotiated well. And, it's, it's, you know, it's satisfying. So we like to do that. So everybody tries to maximize their advantage. So the natural tendency is that the union is going to start to want to provide fewer services and to raise more money from you, right? So their dues are going to go up and their work is going to go down, uh, which is natural. And so, you know, that's never going to be stable. So you, you constantly need market forces to control 
both the you know predations of the evil capitalists, but also the predations of the evil union, union reps. And it keeps them honest, right? The market keeps everybody honest because it gives everybody options and um, you, you don't get to use violence. So everybody has to choose you, which means you have to objectively provide them value in the long run if you want to maintain a relationship. I mean, you can be a con man and sort of do stuff in the short run, but you, in, the, in the free market, you have to provide people value in the long run. Otherwise, you're just not going to stay economically viable. So the union then uh, begins to provide poorer services and, and raise its rates. And so what will happen then is that the economic balance will tip to the point where joining a union now is not as economically advantageous as it is to not join a union. So, for instance, a capitalist who has figured out that the overhead of a union is pretty expensive, right? So the overhead of a union is expensive because, you know, you've got more paperwork um, and uh, it's more expensive... um, because you always have this th- the threat of the strike, right? I mean, if you don't have a union, a strike is very unlikely. If you have a union, a, strat- a, th- a strike is always possible. And, of course, if the union then further tips the balance by saying not only are we going to have a strike, but we're also going to beat up anybody who tries to cross the picket lines and our friends, the cops, won't do much, and so we'll, you know, we can shut you down pretty much indefinitely, then you know, having a union is an economic catastrophe for uh, an owner. And so owners are going to pretty much figure this out pretty quickly, and they're going to match the wage requirements of the workers without requiring the overhead of a union, right? So let's say that a union gets everybody from 20 bucks to 21 bucks if you have a union. Well, you know, guess what? When I start up my new factory, I'm going to pay everyone 21 bucks, and I'm going to say, look, I'm going to match what the unions do, uh, because, but you're not going to need a union, so you're not going to have to pay any union dues. So you're actually going to do better. I mean, that's what any sensible capitalist is going to do. They're going to be, in a sense, be free riders from the collective bargaining process and just pay people money uh, that what they would have got otherwise through collective bargaining without the overhead of unions and without the overhead of the threat of strikes and all that. And that, that's better for the employees as well, right? Because then the employees don't have the overhead of unions either. So, you know, the natural tendency of the free market would be to erase the value of unions, right? Because wherever you can cut out a middleman in the free market, you want to. It's more profit for everybody else, right? You don't have to share the pie as, as widely. So um, so unions face a natural um, decline in their value is in a sort of free market scenario. Now, there are always new, new bad capitalists coming along. There are always immigrants coming in uh, who don't speak English, uh, or who don't know the local market conditions, or, and there are always new new fields of industry coming up. There are always new countries where you know people haven't figured all this sophisticated capitalist stuff out. So you know unions always have a place; they always have a role. But as an economy matures, right, they are cut out as uh, less important middlemen, right? So uh, that's sort of the natural progress of, of union power. And I mean unions are very aware of this, right? I mean they're not they're not dumb people. So you know, so what are they going to do? Well, uh, you know, they are going to um, take their money. So as as state power grows, right, as as the state has more control of the economy and as the public sector unions grow, right, you have a problem with public sector unions because, especially if they're providing essential services, because uh, there's no competition, right? So if, you know, a... a, um, uh, if a car factory, if members of a car factory go on strike, well, there are probably like half a dozen other car factories that are still producing cars, so, you know, it's not a catastrophe. But if the, um, uh, 
you know, if the doctors in a socialized healthcare system go on strike, well, you can't get any medical services, right? If the garbage men in a government monopoly go on strike, you can't get any garbage men. You can't get your garbage collected. So when you have a public sector monopoly, you have a big problem in that it's such an imbalance of power that you then have to, you know, basically take away their right to strike, your essential services. So, you know, it gets all very complicated and messy, but unions will still exist and they'll pound you uh, pretty consistently to... um, uh, to give them better wages, saying, well, you're not even allowing us to strike, so you've got to pay us for that consideration, and so on. Well, I had a pretty quick drive today, 32 minutes. Um, I guess this will have to be a part one of two, uh, so I will talk to you soon. Thanks so much for listening.